So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, give us an understanding of your word that deepens our love for you and our love for the gospel and, and your kingdom, Lord Jesus, and makes us humble and faithful like the Apostle Paul was. So please help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, last week was chapter 20, and in chapter 20, uh, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, right? He says, I've got to get to Jerusalem. I, I'm, I'm in such a hurry to get, Jerusalem, to, to get to Jerusalem that I will not stop in Ephesus, because I know if I stop in Ephesus, I'm going to get I'm going to have to stay longer because I love these people and they love me and, and it'll turn into something bigger than I thought, right? I mean, you know, you've had projects like that. They always turn out bigger than you thought. And so I can't, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to stop on the coast. I'm going to call the elders down to meet me and I'm going to talk to them and then I'm going to go. So that was last week. And he teaches them and he, he's, he again reminds them of himself and his work and what he was like. And of course, all of that is to admonish them to be like him. That's the point, right? And now we get to chapter 21. And so last week, we were in Miletus. You see how Ephesus is up here? And they came all the way down here to Miletus to meet with Paul. Then when he leaves, he, they, remember, they, they weep. And they hug him and they keep hanging on to him because he tells them, you're never going to see me again. I'm leaving and I'm probably going to die. And so they weep. And then he gets on the boat and he goes all along here. And we're going to see this, these little stops along the way this morning real briefly. And then all the way to here to Tyre. And then down here to Ptolemais and then to Caesarea. And then ultimately to Jerusalem. So he ends up by the end, by by where we end today, he's in Jerusalem and things aren't going so well, all right? At least from one point of view, things are not going well at all. So let's read starting in verse 1 of chapter 21. <clears throat> when we had parted, when we had parted from them, so that's the elders from Ephesus who'd come down to meet him, when we had parted from them and had set sail... We ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, Phoenicia is like the coast of, of what we think of as of Palestine, so Tyre would have been Phoenicia. When we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, and leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again." So a lot of traveling, a lot of moving, getting from one place to the other. And they land in Tyre, right on the coast there of the Mediterranean. And it says, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. So the Apostle Paul had never been to Tyre before, at least as far as we know in the, in the history of, this, of the book of Acts. 
We don't ever read about him going to, to Tyre. So when he gets to Tyre, the first thing he does is he tries to figure out, are there Christians here? And where are they? And how can I meet with them? And so that's what he does. He was always seeking out believers to encourage. And not because he had some kind of, you know, uh, uh, celebrity, you know, oh, I'm in town. People will want to meet with me, you know. But he does want to encourage them. He wants to admonish them. And he wants to teach them. And so where are the Christians? And he finds them. He probably never met them before. And he comes together and it says he's with them for seven days. All right? So that allows him to, to preach on the Lord's Day, no matter how you cut it. He's able to be there with them during the week. He's able to preach to them. And so he's there for a total of seven days. David? No idea whatsoever. I didn't, I didn't even know that that was an alternate. Weird. I don't know. That's confusing. Seven. Seven days. Um, and then it says, when he's there, right? Um, do, 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 do. Where are we? Oh, here we are. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, this is going to come up over and over again. We're going to see it. I'm going to spend time talking about this in a minute later on. But everywhere he goes, there, everyone keeps saying to him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You know, that's where the enemy is. That's where the, everyone who wants to kill you is, and you're going to go to Jerusalem? Don't go to Jerusalem. We love you. And then it says, when our days were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. Now think about this. They had only known, the, the, Paul had not been here before as far as we know. He was there for seven days. Even if it's, I mean, it's even more incredible if it's one day, but I'm going to say seven. He's there for a week, only a week. And when it's time for him to leave, what do the people do? They don't just say, okay, bye. See ya. Nice to know you. They walk with him. They escort him. In other words, they, they want every moment they can have with him. Right? And so if he's going to walk to the beach, to, is that what it says? Because they're going to get on a boat, I think. Maybe not. I think they might walk. I can't remember. On the beach. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, on the beach. That's right. And they get on board the ship. So yeah, so it's like, it's like driving them to the airport. You know, it's not just, hey, take a taxi. You know, nice to meet you. I hope you have a safe trip. No, we want to we wanna be in the car with you. We want every minute. And so they walk with him down to the beach and wait for them, you know, wait with them for the ship. And who comes along? The men of the church, right? And who else? The wives and the children. That's just so sweet. Um, not, it's not just the men, it's the wives and the children. So the men were leading their wives and children to honor and love the Apostle Paul too, right? So husbands and fathers, teach your wives and children who to honor, who to look up, who to, look up to, who to respect, who to listen to. 
So after only a week, they're, they're close friends, intimate friends, and they can't stand to see him go, and they beg him not to go to Jerusalem. All right, let's keep going. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, same thing, where are the Christians? Where are the Christians? Got to find the Christians. Okay, hello, Christians, <laughs> right? After greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. So there's the one day, verse seven. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. So the next town down. And entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So they come to Caesarea and they come to the house of Philip. Remember Philip, Philip is one of the original seven. That's what it means by one of the seven. He's one of the original seven deacons from Jerusalem. Remember that way back in chapter six, seven, that was a long time ago. And it was literally a long time ago in the story as well, all right? Philip, remember, we meet Philip. He's one of those deacons. And then immediately he's an evangelist. He's preaching the gospel in Samaria, I think. And then he gets, God tells him to go and meet up with this Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? And he preaches the gospel to him and he baptizes him. And then it says he goes to Caesarea. That's all the way back in chapter whatever it was, six or seven? I can't remember. Eight, I don't know. And then he stays there, evidently. Because when, you know, 20-some years later, he's still there in Caesarea. He has uh, three things. We know he has three things. What are they? A house, <laughs> right? Because they stay with Philip's house. He had, has or had a wife, because he's got seven daughters. Is it seven? Did I make that up? Four. What? Four, four, seven, you know, seven. I'm, I'm obsessed with seven now because of the days. So four, he had four daughters. All right, so he's settled down, he has a family. And surely a part of the church there, obviously. And these daughters, it says, are prophetesses. Whatever that means. Remember what, what it says in uh, what the Apostle Peter says in, the, in, in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, quoting from Joel, God's going to pour out his Holy Spirit, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now, this is one of the fulfillments of that. These are prophetesses. They're not preachers, they're not pastors. They have a gift of the Holy Spirit that allows them to, in this chapter, we're going to see Agabus, right? It's, it's kind of foretelling the future is what Agabus is doing. So something like that. We're not going to, talk, we're not going to spend time about that, talking about that. All right. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet, right? So he takes Paul's belt and wraps up his own, like hog ties himself or something. I don't know how that works. 
and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, is this news to Paul? Is this news? Is this like, what? What's going to happen? Oh, I better not go to Jerusalem. No, this is, he knows this is what's going to happen to him, and he's known for a long time, right? All the way back in chapter 20, well, not all the way back, but back in chapter 20, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders on the, in Miletus, here's what he says. He says, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what exactly, right, will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city. So wherever I go, I think the idea is wherever I go, there are Christians and there's a prophet or someone in that city who says, Paul, here's what's gonna happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, no matter where I go, this is what I keep hearing, that bonds, right, handcuffs and chains, bonds and afflictions await me. This is what he's been hearing for a long time now, no matter where he goes. And so this isn't news when Agabus comes and says, here's what's gonna happen. I know, I know, I know this is what's gonna happen to me. And what he said to the the Ephesian elders in chapter 20 20 is, uh, this is what's gonna happen. Bonds and afflictions await me. But my life is, I don't in any way count my life as dear to myself. I don't, it's okay. It's okay. From my perspective, it's okay. Because I have a course to run. And the finish line is not a little villa, you know, overlooking the Mediterranean in peace. It's standing before kings and testifying to them of this gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. David, did I see a hand? I was about to read that, and so I will. No, it's all right. Um, In just a moment, where, well, I thought I had that in here. Yeah, it's later on. Chapter nine, we'll get to that in a second. So when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents, it says, have I read this yet? No, I haven't. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to, up to Jerusalem. So Agabus comes and tells them what's going to happen, and they, again, beg him not to go. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So they kept begging us. They kept begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, why? This is weird. 
because these are, these are prophecies given, Paul says, in every city, and now Agabus, and he puts on a little show, right? Like a lot of the Old Testament prophets did. It's not just words, it's, you know, they do things, weird. And so he wraps himself up, he ties himself up with Paul's belt, tells him, this is what's gonna happen to you, Paul. This is a message from the Holy Spirit, right? And the people are saying, don't do it. Don't go. How can you say don't go? This is a message from the Holy Spirit. Well, this is because they love him. You know, some prophecies are, this is what'll happen if you do something. And here's what'll happen if you don't do something. And they're reading, they're hearing this as a prophecy that this is what'll happen if you go, therefore don't go. But Paul's not reading it that way. He knows he has to go, but they love him. And so they beg him, they beg him not to go. Yes. What's that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so back in verse four. Now you're going to get us all waylaid here. Uh, back in verse four it says they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, I think it's, this is what will happen to you if you set foot in Jerusalem. I think that's how we have to understand it. Over and over again, he's told what's going to happen. I don't know. That's a weird one. So wherever Paul goes, the, the men and the women loved him. They loved him so much that they beg him not to go, right? Uh, they have this deep personal affection for him which tells you something about the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? He's not, he's not a hard, cold, dispassionate scholar, right, who lives in his books. He's a man, he's the kind of man that everyone loves, the men, the women, and the children. You just see this all over the place. He loves them. That's what it means, he loves them. Remember, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about that love for the people wherever he goes. He says this, uh, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. So he has a fond affection for everybody he ministers to we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own lives, our own souls, our own selves, right? Because you had become very dear to us. And so that always becomes a two-way street. He loves them like this, and then therefore they love him back. And so his old companions and his new friends both began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Please, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We beg you, don't go into the, it's a trap. You know, it's a trap. Pull back, it's a trap. We love you, we don't want to lose you. And what does he say? He answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Why are you, why are you afflict, you're causing me pain. Your pain causes me pain. So you're weeping and that makes me, you're breaking my heart, please stop. Or he's caught between these two tensions, right? Love for the people and not wanting to cause them pain and he knows he's gotta to go to Jerusalem. There's no, there's no way to reconcile that, right? He's gonna cause them pain 
He has to go. So please stop, stop weeping and breaking my heart. You know I love you. I don't want to hurt you. I'm not doing this because I'm cold to your concern. I know you love me and I know it'll hurt you if I'm gone. But please stop weeping. You know what I have to do. I know what I have to do. I'm not only ready to be bound in Jerusalem, like Ag- Agabus just said, I'm ready to die there for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to, to, to go all the way. I'm ready to die. So think about this. All along, the Holy Spirit himself is telling Paul that he's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, like I said. And like Carol pointed out back in verse four, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. What's going on? Is, he, is the Apostle Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit? Or is somehow the Holy Spirit sending him mixed messages? Go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Go to, don't go to, go to, you know. No. No. He's not disobeying and the Holy Spirit is not sending mixed messages. The Holy Spirit is revealing the truth to both the Apostle Paul and many others along the way. Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. But of course, when that's the message, Paul and his friends interpret it differently, right? His friends take that fact and beg him not to go. Well, this obviously means you shouldn't go. But he takes the fact and it strengthens his spine. The Holy Spirit is saying to me over and over again, this is what's gonna happen. And so obviously this is what I was made for. And in fact, that's, that's the truth. Paul's never thinking about himself. He's always thinking about his mission. He's always thinking about his calling. He's always thinking about uh, the course that has been set out for him by his master. And as David pointed out, this is exactly what the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself, when he first stopped Paul in his tracks all the way back in chapter nine, years and years, decades ago from now, here in chapter 21, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus said would be the case from the very beginning. And so he says that this is what his life was gonna be for. And this is, here, I've got it. This is chapter nine. When the Lord comes to Ananias, remember remember this story? And he says to him, there's this guy named Saul, and you know who Saul is. Saul is the guy who kept wanting to kill all the Christians, but but he's mine now. And so you need to go and and baptize him. And Ananias is like, what are you talking about? And the Lord says, no, really, right? And here's what he says. The Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is the plan. Paul, you're gonna stand before kings. What kings? Well, we're going to see the kings. We're going to see them. And the path to Rome, where the king is, Caesar, is through Jerusalem. Okay? And he knows this. And the Holy Spirit keeps telling him, and that's what he's, that's what he's going to do. And it's all about the name of the Lord Jesus. 
the honor, the fame, the character, the person of the Lord Jesus, the King. So no, your tears are breaking my heart, but I will not be shaken from my calling. I'm going to Jerusalem. Stop it. And then it says, and since he would not be persuaded, no matter what we said, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. We, this is clearly the will of God, and let the will of God be done. The will of the Lord. What's that? It was not the will of God that he not go. If it was the will of God that he not go, then he would be disobeying God by going, but he's not, because Jesus said, this is what your life is going to be, Paul, and so he knows it, and he's going. No. No. That's, that's the whole point I was making. The Holy Spirit is telling him what's going to happen. That's not an indication that he shouldn't go. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Now, now I'm going to read through chapter 23. <laughs> All right. So, Follow along. I'll stop and make some, some comments as we go. But it's a good story. All right? And so pay attention. But here's what happens. Verse 17. We arrived at Jerusalem. All right? So he comes into Jerusalem. Here he is. And everything's going to hinge now on the fact that he's in Jerusalem. So after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly the Christians, and the church. There is no, there's, <clears throat> Paul and, and the, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul and the, and the apostles, there's only one apostle left in Jerusalem by this time, it looks like James, right? They're not at odds with one another, they're friends. They receive him gladly, they're warm, they're, they welcome him. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. These are all the men who would have been there back in chapter 15 in the council of Jerusalem, right? They're all there. They welcome him. These are the, rep, the, the leaders of the church. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he tells the whole story going all the way back to the beginning, everything that he had done with the Gentiles, the great successes that he had accomplished among the Gentiles. Now, is that what he says? <clears throat> what does it actually say? He began to relate one by one the, great, the things which God had done among the Gentiles. Okay, it's important. Notice that. What God had done through his ministry, right? He, he says in First or Second Corinthians, I can't remember which, I am what I am by the grace of God. Everything I've done, I've done by the grace of God. This isn't me, this is God, right? 
This isn't my great skill and my great wisdom and my great effective public speaking and all this kind of nonsense. When he's talking about what happened among the Gentiles, it's what God did among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, here we are, and when they heard it, they began glorifying Paul. No, they began glorifying God. Because God was the one who did it. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, if you've, we've been going through the book of Acts up to this point, and if, you, if you're not careful, that can come as a surprise to you. What he says, what the apostles here, in, or the elders in, in, in Jerusalem say. Because everywhere Paul has gone, what's it been like, remember? Who, who hates him the most? It's the Jews. And the only reason Gentiles hate him is because the Jews tell them to. <laughs> right? They're stirring up the crowds to hate the, the Paul. But it's always the Jews doing that. But he comes back to Jerusalem and he's like, look, the elders are, look, you know, you see, you see? How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed. And that started back on the day of Pentecost when thousands believed that very first day. And it's easy to forget that. And then we see, again, more thousands are added. And that is continued. So there is a church, there is a Jewish church in Jerusalem. Okay? And the, and the elders say, look, you see all of these thousands here among the Jews of those who believed, and they're all zealous for the law. What does that mean? That means they're Jews. And so that's what they've grown up with, that's what they've known, that's the whole structure of their whole society from, ev- from birth to death. They, they know the law and they're zealous for the law, and here there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. That's not a problem. That's their culture, okay? We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Look what he says. Look what they say. They're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, Paul, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So there are Jews who are lying about you, Paul, and they're telling their fellow Jews that you, Paul, are teaching that Jews should forsake all of the customs, all of the old law, circumcision. Nah, forget about circumcising your own children. Now, this is a lie. Paul never told Jews not to circumcise their children. He told Gentiles that they don't have to be circumcised. But he never told Jews not to circumcise their children. Now we can get in deep into that, and we're not. Let's just keep going. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, these are the elders of the church in Jerusalem and James. These aren't just some random Jews out there who aren't believers. These these are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, okay? 
We have four men who are under a vow. This would probably be a Nazarite vow. You can read about that in Deuteronomy, I think, or Numbers. can't remember. I think it's Numbers. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. All right? So this is a public way for all the Jews who have been told lies about you to see you actually acting in a way that is not destroying the ceremonial law among the Jews, is not trying to, to tear it down. And look what they say next. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from, from fornication. In other words, you know we're not saying anything about the Gentiles keeping the ceremonial law. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying the Gentiles have to become Jews. But it's okay for the Jews to live like Jews. Remember what Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew, as one under the law. Well, here's a perfect example of that. There's nothing wrong with this. But when he's among the Gentiles, pass the bacon. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So this is a very public act. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, so these are the Jews from places like Ephesus, all those places where he had been, where he, they had fought and fought and fought against him, and here they show up in Jerusalem, and the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd. This is what they're good at. And laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Where did they get that? For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, not in the temple, but in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Well, that's a lie. That's not at all what happened. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. They shut the doors because they don't want him getting back into the temple and claiming um, asylum. They're going to kill him. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the commander and, and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So when it says they were seeking to kill him, that means they were beating him, hoping that he would end up dead. And so the soldiers come and they got to stop, right? And then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, 
and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Who are you? What have you done? But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, so there's a set of stairs you have to go up to get out of this temple area, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. He couldn't even walk. He couldn't even get through. They had to pick, literally pick him up and, you know, muscle him through the crowd. The crowd wants him dead. For the multitude of the people kept following him, shouting, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? Notice the, the deference, the respect. He's speaking to the, the commander, and this is, the, this is Paul. He's not making demands. What, can I please speak? And he said, do you know Greek? So the Roman soldier says to him, you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Because that's what I heard. I thought I heard someone say that. You're not that guy? Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Please. And when he, had given, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, brethren and fathers, this is how we know that Paul was a Presbyterian. This is what all Presbyterians say. Trust me, you'll see. When they're talking to the, to, the, to, the, to the presbytery or the general assembly, brethren and father, well, this is where it comes from. It's a good thing to say because it shows respect. I'm just joking about the Presbyterian. Well, actually, I'm not, but you know. <laughs> brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated under, the, under Gamaliel, the most famous of all the rabbis, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons and also the high priest and all the, as, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. Just ask them. They still live here. They can tell you. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do, like suffer, like go stand before kings. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. 
A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." That's the, wrong, that's the wrong thing to say. I mean, it's not, because look what happens. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Why? Why should he not be allowed to live? Because he's going to the Gentiles. They start ripping their hair out. Okay. Got to keep reading. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. I'm going to beat you until you tell me why they're shouting against you. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman? The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. It's against the law, right? But on the next day, wishing to know for certain Why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before the men, or set him before them. Now, I'm going to stop. What I want you to do between now and next Sunday is read chapter 23. All right? This is, they take him to the council and he's going to talk, he's going to speak before the council. And I want you to read that. And we'll talk about it briefly, but I just simply don't have time. There will be a test. Yeah. No. So would you read chapter 23, everybody? You going to do that? All right. All right. We got to stop. Let's pray. Father, would you please, again, uh, give us faith and strengthen us, uh, even as we see this man suffering and all these pieces falling into place, knowing that you're at work knowing that the gospel is not hindered or bound just because Paul is. As a matter of fact, all these things are going to work out for the advancement and the increase and the the strengthening of the gospel itself. Please help us think about how that applies to us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.